Hey folks, it's been quite a while since we did one of these, so I am very excited to be sharing this episode with you. Uh, For those of you who are new to the podcast and the online learning platform, my name is Steven Obisanya and I'm a documentary photographer. With this new episode, I figured it'd be great to share a few updates um, with you, you know, why I have not been producing podcasts on a weekly and regular basis. Um, Over the past few months, I've been transitioning my work from photography slowly to starting up and running a branding and design studio. Um, It's the work that I've always really enjoyed. It's work that I've always admired from afar, and it felt like the right time to finally jump into something that I was truly passionate about um, and just dive in headfirst and see um, the new challenges that laid ahead and, you know, of course, how to incorporate photography, design, and just all the things that I've always been interested in into one uh, huge uh, pot. So it should come as no surprise that, you know, this new lane of work has impacted the amount of podcasts that I can produce and share with you all on a regular basis. Um, But that doesn't necessarily mean that the podcast is going to stop. Um, It just means that there will be a pivot that's happening. It simply means that quality will now take the place of quantity. You know, so instead of releasing new podcasts every single week, um, I think it's going to be quality and impactful podcasts filled with insightful lessons released when the time feels right to do so. Also, it means you should subscribe to the newsletter and, you know, follow along with Artisans in Trade on Instagram so that you can get notified when new episodes are published. I don't want you guys to miss the new episodes that I will be sharing, you know, Uh, now that I'm not sharing on a weekly basis. Uh, From here on out, the podcast will primarily feature the Ongoing Talks series, which are the short conversations, approximately 30 minutes, that are laser-focused on one subject to offer very practical insights, lessons, and resources for you to apply to your creative journey. Um, This week's episode delivers just that, and, you know, I hope you enjoy, I hope you continue to tune in, and I hope you continue to share this podcast with your friends and loved ones. Um, The goal, essentially, is to make sure that you are being provided with a variety of different trades. You are, you know, having access to um, a lot more creative professionals and, you know, Hopefully, you are able to get some mentors from these episodes that are being produced. Um, If they are helping you, feel free to share uh, a review on iTunes. Uh, Feel free to share it on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook with your friends. Um, Just spread the love so that way I can continue to produce these podcasts. Uh, without further ado, I will share some information about this week's podcast guest, and I hope you enjoy. On to this week's podcast episode. Designer, teacher, and author Michael Shumate joins us to talk about the concepts in his new book, Logo Design Theory, How Branding Really Works. 
He taught graphic design and illustration for 25 years and is now generously sharing his discoveries on the principles of logo design with the world. So if you don't mind, um, would you please just introduce yourself? Tell me about your, your background, um, the work you do, and how you've come to um, where you are now. I, uh, I graduated from graphic design uh, from Brigham Young University in uh, 1972. Uh, I'm one of the few people who actually stayed in the field they studied uh, back then. Back then, it was only about 25%. Now, it's supposed to be quite a bit less than that of people actually staying in the field that they study. Uh, I, I loved graphic design and illustration right from the beginning. I, I went to work in Prince Edward Island. Uh, we moved up there in 1973. Uh, it's not a place that has a lot of graphic designers, but the advantage was that um, in a bigger place, you have to have done the kind of work that people want you to do already. Mm. <laughs> it's one of those chicken and egg things. You never get a chance to do it unless you've already done it. Yeah. Uh, there in PEI, people weren't so weren't so snooty and uh, people would say, can you do that? And I'd say, certainly I can. And, and then I would figure out how to do it. <laughs> so, so by the time uh, I had gotten about uh, 14, 15 years in the, in the, in the field, I um, applied for a job to teach. I had a very varied portfolio, which was one of the things that got me the job. I had done a lot of branding. I'd done a lot of illustration. I'd done a lot of uh, everything. And uh, so I got that job and it was, it was really great. Uh, where I really learned graphic design was teaching because when you have to explain something and you have to give concrete criteria for the grades you're going to award, <laughs> you, you know, I had teachers that graded according to what they liked. And mm. I hated that. I hated that. I thought that was so bogus. You know, personal taste is no criteria for grades. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, I always made a commitment that I would I would teach according to concrete principles. And of course, they'd have to be principles that had, I had already taught my students to, in order to hold them accountable. So I had to figure out those principles as I went along. You know, one of my first weeks teaching, um, it was teaching branding design. And, and I had told the students to go home and do 24 different concepts. They each had a different uh, fictitious client. And this one student, uh, I went and I went around then the next week, uh, talked to each student privately and and said, uh, show me your concepts and which one do you think you're gonna run with? And the student showed me his concepts and he showed me the one he wanted to run with. And I said, that's not gonna work. Mm. And he very naturally said, why? And I couldn't articulate why, I just couldn't. I knew he was breaking some principle, Yeah. Mm, but I couldn't articulate it. And, and I knew two things. I knew one that my answer, I said, I don't know, but it's just, I know it's not going to work. <laughs> I knew that answer was totally inadequate. You know, it's like your father saying, because I told you so, right. And, you know, doesn't wash. And the second thing was, I knew there was a principle and I had to figure out what it was. And so that I could teach it so that then I could, you know, hold the account, the students accountable. And so for that whole 25 years I taught, I, I, held my nose to the grindstone to really figure out what are the principles that don't change. Fads come, fads go, but there are things that just don't change uh, and um, in, in every kind of art. 
and and certainly in graphic design and branding design in particular. So that's that's what I uh, strive to do the whole time. And over that time, I would I would uh, teach, and every time I'm grading was the big the big evaluation for me, figuring out what are, why is this not working or why is this working, mm. and and you know so that I could actually point it out to my students that you know look if you do this it will always hurt your identity mm. it will always hurt a brand and there so i came up in the end with seven deadly sins of logo design these are things if you do them that brand is not going to work in some way or other uh, that in a way that a brand should work it won't if you do any of these seven things but there are so many other wonderful things you can do with branding that those seven are just you know why would you um why would you begrudge somebody saying, if you go through that door, it's going to kill you. You know, that's, that's a good thing to know. You right. know? <laughs> I don't want, you know, sudden death is, is a good thing to avoid. And, and uh, you know, you just don't want that. So uh, that's what I've always tried to do. And, and uh, all during the time I was teaching, I also wanted to adopt a book. Hmm. So that was already explained these principles, but there was no such book. Hmm. And uh, there were books that had lots of logos. There were books that showed the progress of developing some logos. And some of them, I thought, that's a bad logo in the end. Why, why have that even in your book? <laughs> so anyway, it's because I had figured out enough things to, to know that that was not going to work. And I was right. You know, those companies invariably changed those logos, got rid of them because they didn't work. I think that that's remarkable because um, you're you're responsible for teaching uh, groups of students over the years you've taught and you know instead of giving into the very um, I guess the easy thing to do which is to grade things based on the things that you know based on how you were taught and based on the things you like you went a whole I mean several steps further than that um, so like your teaching career was basically the the foundations for this logo design theory book Yes. The concepts were developed over those years of teaching. Yeah. That's wonderful. Um, how would you define, I mean, we'll talk about logo design principles in, you know, um, in depth, but how do you design, define um, branding identity design or brand identity design or corporate identity design? What is this thing that, um, you know, so many people practice today and so many corporate brands uh, use as their mark right well we we of course use the same word for branding uh when we talk about logos as cowboys use when they brand cows and we think that it started maybe with the wild west in north america but it actually it was three thousand years ago in egypt they branded cows and the brands then were not that different from the brands that the wild west used they were simple they were easy to recognize. And they basically said, that's my cow. And that's the purpose of branding. <laughs> that really is. That's my cow, you know, and, and don't confuse it with anybody else's cow. And uh, you want to be able to see it when the cow is wet or when it's, you know, low, low light situation. You, you just want to be able to quickly identify that's my cow. And that's what a brand is all about. And anything that gets in the way of that, if it can't be seen clearly on a sign, if it can't be seen, uh, if it has to be spend extra money to reproduce it, if it uh, when it gets small, if things mush together, uh, if it doesn't stand out 
because it has no mass, all of those kinds of things. Those are, again, what led me to figure out the, the deadly sins of low design, because if, if you have that in a brand, it's not going to work. And people are going to figure it out sooner or later, and they're going to replace it. So the end of the, the, the last section of my book, uh, in the end of that, I, I go through all of the seven deadly sins, and I show uh, in that section uh, several hundred logos where companies have gotten rid of the old logo because it committed one of the deadly sins, whether they knew it or not. They saw the effects. They saw that it didn't work. And they, they have replaced it with something that didn't break the deadly sin in that regard. So I go through each of those seven deadly sins uh, that way uh, to kind of say, this is what the whole design industry is doing. They may be feeling their way along. It would be a lot easier if they didn't have to kind of do hit and miss, you know, trial and error if they knew these principles up front and avoided them in the first place. Uh, their clients would be so much happier because there have been brands that have lasted 20, 30, 40, 50 and more years. Yeah. And because they didn't violate any of those principles and therefore they worked and still work for their clients. How is it possible that, I think you, you've touched on this, that you know when you were trying to develop this concept of a book or before the book, you were trying to find books that had these branding principles um, already defined and laid out and you couldn't find that. Yeah. How is it possible that um, design studios, um, huge design firms um, are taken on multi-million dollar companies and you know deciding to work on their brand brand identity for them but failing to meet sort of like the standards or the principles of design how how is that possible well part of it is this this notion of uh what art is all about uh we've gotten kind of in 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 western art we've gotten to this notion that it has to be different mm. in order to be good if it's not different it's not good and and to some extent certainly you want it to not look like somebody else's brand but to be to what degree of different does it have to be a whole different kind of thing and people are are falling over themselves to try to get this this unique difference as if that was the most important thing when it to, to actually work is the most important thing and not lose sight of that fact. Uh, the other thing is that since I started in graphic design back in the stone age, when we did everything in stone, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, we have gone to the computer age where we do everything uh, on little silicon chips, you know, but uh, now the, 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 we used to do everything by hand when I started in graphic design and now we do everything on the computer. And uh, so, but the graphic design programs have remained three and four years typically. So something has had to go. Hmm. So whereas they might have touched on certain principles in bygone times, those, they just don't have room for those. So subjects like, like uh, typography are still taught, but subjects like illustration sometimes are not within the graphic design program. And yet graphic designers are the ones that have to answer for and hire illustrators and decide if the work is good enough or not, yet they have no training in it, for instance, you know. Uh, so it's just an, an example of how um, it's just the nature of the beast because there used to be whole professions in graph that were addendum to graphic design. There used to be stat makers. There used to be 
um, photo engravers that were adjunct to the to the printing process to make color separations. Now color separations are automatic. They they just they they just are there when you when you press print. You mm-hmm. know it, it's it's done. Uh, so there are a whole bunch of things like that. Typesetters. Nobody sets goes and sets type. Well, some people do, but I mean, generally speaking, the designer becomes the typesetter. So all of those things have all also come on the plate of the graphic designer. So there's a whole lot more to learn than there ever was when I started, and uh, and a whole lot more to be responsible for. So it's a natural it's a natural function of of the progress has been a double-edged sword. Uh, some things have just had to go by the wayside. And one of those things is thinking about principles. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite sad. I think it's it's something I, I guess you see across uh, a lot of the um, the the practices, a lot of the crafts that we, we take on today. I think, you know, some of that hands-on artisanal parts of the things we do today are missing. Um, I'm a photographer. I initially wanted to learn the process of shooting on film and developing your own film and printing. But, you know, I went to, I signed up for my first photography class and they were like, oh no, we phased out our film photography, uh, you know, class. So um, from that point on, I didn't learn how to develop film or print my own, you know, film. I still shoot film, but um, some of these things are lost when, you know, a lot of institutions, you know, cut out that, critical aspect of the practice. So I kind of um, identify with what you're talking about here. Um, Some of these these logo principles, logo design principles, um, and the seven deadly sins, I'm not sure which one you would want to touch on first, Um, but I think it'd be great to kind of maybe even just in bullet form, talk about what the seven deadly sins are and what the logo design principles are. So we can jump into sort of seeing the principles in um, practice when we actually talk about specific examples of um, logo logos or, you know, brand identity that works and, you know, brand identities that don't quite work or stand the test of time. So which one would you want to jump into first? Well, uh, I, I have coined an acronym for the seven deadly sins with a seven letter word. And the word is blowout. So we all know if you're driving in a car and you have a blowout, that's a, that's a very bad situation. I love that. And we only need one hole to make a blowout. It doesn't take, you know, seven or 10 or, or two dozen. Just one is enough. And that's the way it is with, with, uh, with uh, logo design. If you commit any one of the seven deadly sins, there's going to be a blowout. Mm. Uh, there have been some examples, uh, famous examples, actually, that have committed more than one of the seven deadly sins. And of course it's not gonna work. One was enough to make it not work. And they did like uh, uh, the AT&T logo that they had the globe with the, with the intersecting um, uh, uh, lines. That, yeah. that had three of the seven deadly sins in it. And, and, uh, and they had to abandon it. After yeah. 10 years, they abandoned it, which was a, a massive expenditure. You know, for a company as big as, as uh, Xerox, uh, with all of their branches and their signage and their vehicles and and not to mention their actual products and and not just the the machines themselves but all of the paper and the toner cartridges and all those things when you have to change anything like that the expenditure is just phenomenal so it's not 
is not just an aesthetic nicety. It's it's an economic imperative to get it right the first time. And and it's really unfortunate when some of these big companies pay big bucks and get a logo that doesn't work. So AT&T was an example. Uh, they had a very nice logo that had been designed by um, uh, Landor Associates. Mm. And then they had a very nice signature that had been designed by Chermaff and Geismer in New York. And uh, that, that identity could have lasted them forever. And that they decided they wanted something new. And so they got this, they hired uh, Interbrand, which is a big branding firm in New York City. They got this globe with, with intersecting, three sets of intersecting black lines in a red globe, and it's three-dimensionalized. So it's it's got shading, it's got a highlight, it's got a, a deep shadow, and it's got a dark part on the bottom. And uh, it didn't work. Hmm. And, and now Xerox, they we of course think of them as photocopiers. But now they have kind of graduated. They like to think of themselves as a reproduction company because now they have these huge machines where you take your USB drive, you plug it in one end, and out of the other end comes a finished magazine book or whatever it is you're after. Mm. And it's, it's not only printed, but it's, it's folded and, and bound, and it's, it's a done deal. So that's the bulk of their revenue now are those kinds of big machines, which are reproduction machines. So how ironic for them to have a logo that is difficult to reproduce mm. when they're in the reproduction business. So even right. things like <laughs> their own photocopy paper uh, comes in a carton. Now cartons, because of their, their, their uneven cardboard corrugated nature, yeah. they have to be printed what's called flexography, which is just a glorified rubber stamp on a drum, but that's how, that's how cardboard boxes are printed. And uh, that kind of printing has a weakness in that, because the the print head or the uh, the actual plate is rubber, it will flex, and little thin lines like their the, the intersecting lines on the blue globe, they will distort and not keep their shape, and and uh, it it can just be pretty nasty. So on the boxes, uh, these the logo looked terrible. It it, it didn't reproduce well. Who designed the Who designed the the logo that was not reproducible? Interbrand. Interbrand, right, okay. Interbrand, yeah. And uh, and then when you open the carton, you take out the paper and each paper, each ream of paper is wrapped with a wrapper. And uh, the, the wrapper appeared to be printed in letterpress, which of course is now uh, steel or iron, um, a plate, which is gonna hold up to the millions of printings that it has to do. But they also still tried to do it in two colors which meant registration was out of mm, whack. So yeah. on their thing, the logo was a, was probably smaller than a half inch and the black lines would be out of register with the red body of the, of the logo, mm. which is one of the deadly sins. Keep your logo one color, you know, was one of the deadly sins because you run into those problems of registration. Yeah. It's a natural problem of printing. It's going to happen. And so on, on these packages, they're, the, the, the black part of the logo will be out of register with the with the red part of the logo and again looked poor and so that was on their own their own wrappers you know <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't even have it and then on the machines they would have these little LCD uh, uh, screens that would tell you what you're doing and they would project their own logo and because of these were um, kind of um, beginner screens shall we say the logo didn't reproduce well. Mm. Because first of all, it's broken into pixels, 
And there were not that many pixels in those screens, you know? And so here on their own machine, on their own screen, their own logo doesn't look good because it doesn't do subtleties that well. Yeah. And, uh, so, so there were three examples of how it didn't do well. And when it first came out, I prophesied to my students, I said, they're going to figure out this doesn't work and they're going to get rid of that logo. Mm. And, uh, and sure enough, I think it took them 11 years and they just played, abandoned the logo. They yeah. kept the signature they had redesigned, which is, is solid and good, but they just abandoned the logo. So you might think, well, just omitting a logo wouldn't cost that much, but you have to go through and omit it on your machinery, your, 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 your toner cartridges, you know, every last thing you do, all yeah. of your signage, all of the vehicles. I mean, how many vehicles does Xerox have? It's, it's hard to even con conceive Costly. of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, is, the, is the acronym uh, blowout, what, what does that stand for? Okay. It stands for, uh, B stands for must work in solid black. A lot of logo books, they just reproduce the logos in black. And that's the way you should work first, hmm. because there you get the design, the actual shapes. And a lot of designers that want to have whistles and bells with color and this and that and the other thing, and they kind of gloss over the fact that, you know, the actual design has not been worked out because they're camouflaging it with all these colors and, uh, and techniques and uh, goodness knows what, you know. It's a case of all sizzle and no steak. Mm. So it has to work in black. Uh, L is that it, it would lack mass. So some logos just plain don't have enough mass. They, they need a certain amount of mass to show up when it's small or when it's seen at a distance. Uh, when seen in a group, something without mass is going to look recessive compared to something that has some mass. And I'm not talking about being a solid thing, but just have some mass to it. And uh, O would be uh, obscure contrast. Uh, if you don't have good contrast, either from the logo to its background or within a logo, especially if you're trying to do multiple colors and it doesn't have good contrast, it's not going to work. Uh, the W is wayward parts meaning parts that just don't fit like they aesthetically or in some other way, they're kind of, they don't belong with the rest of the whole. Mm. And uh, that's another one. Uh, another O is uh, overlapped elements. Mm. Uh, that used to be big back in the 1800s. So they'd have, you know, overlapped elements in, a, in their identities that were made in engravings and so on. But it, it always cuts down on clarity. If you have let your letters overlapped with an image or image you're overlapping an element, it it they just get in each other's way. And it always it always uh, works out to be not a good idea. Uh, unrefined shapes. If you actually have drawn the thing and you haven't drawn it well, one of the best, probably best known one was the old Intel logo that used to have the INT and then the lowercase e was just dropped down. And mm. the way it intersected and kind of connected, it was really kind of clumsily put together. And uh, so it would be an example of what I would call unrefined elements. And then, of course, the, uh, the last thing, T, would be for tiny shapes and thin lines, which relates a little bit to mass. But even identities that do have a lot of mass, if they, for instance, have uh, very thin gaps between uh, heavy sections, those will have a tendency to fill in. Mm. And, and they just they just won't work so those are the seven seven deadly sins and uh there have been designers over the years who have kind of naturally 
gravitated to better logos. Uh, we had Paul Rand, who in the 50s and 60s uh, of the last century designed logos like the IBM logo. Uh, he designed that clear back in, in the uh, 1967, I believe. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then he refined it a little bit. He found, he did the, the um, he made the, the, the monogram IBM out of 13 horizontal lines. And he found that when it was really small, those, those gaps were too small. They started to fill in and get mushy, especially once we started putting things on TV, which of course then has to go through a grid of pixels. I was just and, about to ask you why the IBM logo works um, in its um, more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? And it's more, uh, without the, the the lines in it, why does it work in that form? And then... I didn't know the the story behind why the lines went from 13 lines to eight lines. Right. But well, why he, does it work in its simplicity? Like well, what, that, what principles is it, is it adhering to? That is one of the principles. Simplicity is one of the principles. You know, you've got to, you really want to get it simple. People think, and, and it's a natural tendency. You get into a creative project, you look at something and you sense that it's not working. You naturally ask yourself, what do I need to add? And most of the time in branding, mm. the question you need to ask is, what do I need to get rid of? Mm. You know, yeah. How can I get this more refined, more simple, more elegant, more, more just plain, you know, uh, aesthetic that way? And, uh, and that's what I, uh, Paul Rand actually did. Uh, he designed his first logo in 67, and then he redesigned it in 72, just five years later, and made it out of only eight lines. So that meant that each line and the gaps were the same size. Now they were solid enough, still gave the IBM, you know, you could see the, the letters just fine. Yeah. But now it was solid enough and bulletproof enough that it didn't matter if it went small, it was going to hold up. So he he kind of figured out one of the deadly sins in his own in, in one of his own logos and fixed mm. it for them. And now they've been using that since 1972. Next year will make 50 years. Wow. That logo's been going on, and it still looks good. You know, it still looks modern and fresh, and and everything's fine with it. So yeah, so that's a great example of a of a good logo. You look at uh, 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 Chermaff and Geismer, who were two designers that uh, graduated from Yale, and they set up shop in New York, and they did some of the greatest logos. They did the Screen Gems logo, they did Chase Bank logo, uh, they did Mobile Gas logo, uh, all sorts of just wonderful things. And of course, they did one of the the good, the good Xerox um, signature that got replaced by the, by the poor logo. Um, mm. But uh, so there's no guarantee that people won't get rid of good logo, good design uh, with some wrong-headed <laughs> management. <laughs> that, that happens. But more, more often, uh, the more common reason that people get rid of logos is that they just don't work. And yeah. they, they, they don't know why, but they just know it doesn't work. And unfortunately, uh, sometimes the designers don't know why either. Mm. What are some things that make uh, a lot of these logos designed by some of the uh, most renowned uh, designers of our time? The, you know, uh, Paul Rand, Saul Bass, and a lot of these kinds of designers, um, you know, from those guys to the folks over at Pentagram today or, you know, similar firms. Um, yeah. What principles do these types of figures 
in the process of designing their logos and um, in the process of learning about, uh, uh, you know, uh, a brand in order to get to a place where they're developing something that represents that brand? What principles are they adhering to in that process to get to something that stands, you know, um, untouched for like 50 years? Right, right. Well, one of the things I concentrate on in my book is, is how to come up with more and better concepts. Uh, more is usually better than fewer. You know, if you if you slave and slave and you've only come up with one good idea, you dare not look very closely at it. <laughs> if that's the only mm. idea you've got, you know, mm. it's your only game in town and, and you're going to go with it and you're going to make it work rather. But if you can come up with a lot of different ideas. So one of the things I also figured out was that there are only four different kinds of concepts. Uh, one kind of concept is corporate activity, what the company does. How can you show that graphically? Uh, another one is corporate ideals. What sort of ideals would this company like to have associated with it? Speed, strength, superiority, leadership, uh, all sorts of ideals that could be there. It could be softness, could be friendliness, it could be you know any number of things. Yeah. Uh, the third kind is the actual corporate name. Now, this doesn't work for as many companies, but Wendy's Hamburgers, uh, you know, uh, you heard it here first, they don't make their burgers from ground up little girls, you know, <laughs> that's not what it's about. Right. It's just the name of the company, which was uh, Dave Thomas's daughter, Wendy. He just named the company after her. And uh, so that's the name of the company. So the identity is Wendy, you know, and that they did a major facelift of that uh, a few years back, which was really good. And uh, but it's still just it's, you know, personifying this Wendy who may or may not be, or, you know, a real person or shown in a realistic way, but it's still, it shows. And uh, so that works, you know, Greyhound bus, uh, you know, you've got all sorts of different companies like that. And then the last one is a graphic approach, which can also work. And it doesn't show anything about the activity, doesn't show anything about the ideals, doesn't show anything about the name. It's just a graphic approach. So think the Chevrolet logo, which if you think, well, I guess the top part of it could look like a car, but the bottom part definitely wouldn't look like a car because you'd be hitting high center over every little bump if that was right. a car so but it's just a graphic shape and it has worked well for them for over a hundred years wow you know and so knowing that there are those four kinds of concepts every time you have a, a client you should sit down and say how could i show this company's identity with what they actually do how could i how could i graphically portray that and then simplify that down and render it down and render it down uh, likewise, what are the ideals they'd like to be associated with? Now, you can't to, to force more than one of those concepts is is pretty much guaranteeing a failure. But every now and then you can get two of them that just happen. But you don't you don't need that. You just really need one to work well. And then gotcha. you're good. Uh, the other thing you need to know is that there are three different kinds of components. And that is that you've got you've got. Uh, word marks which have the word written but some unique design element within it so for instance the n in the middle of sanyo is uh, is an example of a word mark if it was just the te- text we would call that a signature which and and some companies do that but those are those are mostly reserved uh, the the identities that are just signatures are mostly reserved for uh, consumer products gillette uh, you know covergirl 
those kinds of, of, of consumer products and the companies that make them. But for most other kind of identities, that doesn't work. And you need something with a little bit more unique power to it than just why is that why why does why do signatures work for those kinds of uh, cosmetic brands but it doesn't necessarily transfer over into let's say you know a mobile gas station or you know bigger companies Uh, i i don't know i don't Mm. know Uh, uh, i don't know why i just know that that's you look around you say hey look at that these are the only companies for whom that works yeah Then all other companies, they're going to want something more that has more of a unique design at, well, it's a value added thing too, you know? Yeah. Uh, so th- there's more design value added by having uh, something else. So a uh, word mark is one, logo is two, and then a certain kind of logo that incorporates the letters that represent the company would be a monogram. And that's monogram. three. So those are your three different possible components in most graphic or most branding identity uh, that you're going to do. And I always assign my students come up with two concepts for a word mark that does corporate activity. And now a word mark that does corporate ideals. And now a word mark that does corporate name. And now a word mark that does, uh, that is abstract. And, wow. but it has to be compatible with their ideals. You know, I mean, it can't just be totally bizarre. Uh, it has to be compatible with their ideals and then do the same thing for logos and then do the same thing for monograms. Now, just that exercise, just knowing where the boundaries are and the fact that there are these different things going on and are possible is naturally going to give you a bigger, a bigger pot full of ideas that you've come up with Mm. in your brainstorming. And then your challenge is not so much. Do I have anything that works, but which of these is the best? Because you will, you will, if you follow that and, and learn to you really use it and, and let it become part of your design nature, uh, you will, your problem will be, which of these beautiful things do I have to let go in favor of the best one? You know, yeah, that's where you want to be. You're not just right. did I come up with something that might work. That's not where you want to be. You want to be, you want to be on the other end of it where you are an embarrassment of riches, so to speak. You know, <laughs> you have, you have. So many good concepts. And and I never let a good concept throw away. I keep those, you know, because sometimes I might find when I'm dealing with a client, I will remember I have already designed their logo. Interesting. <laughs> so over over that this long a period and, and this long a career, yeah. I've had that happen where I, I know what will what'll go on there. But it comes from having done this process so many times. Yeah. It was uh, something I saw on your website. Um, uh, I completely forget the hospital uh, name now, but it was a hospital that you'd done, I think, four different types of logos for, but for like different branches of their um, units. And it was just really interesting to see how one logo, there was like a core um, identity. Yeah. Yeah. And that identity continued to be evolved into uh well according to the different units of the hospital and it was just so interesting that the core uh, or the framework stayed the same but the interpretation according to the different units for children's unit or whatever continued to change and i thought that was so brilliant um is this process of um designing what you 
um, use for your work and what you've seen, you know, in the students that, that you've taught over the years? Is that the process that you um, go through, which is like, you know, find in two different examples of um, word marks that work for the corporate identity or the corporate, um, what is it? activity yeah like is that the process you you go through or do you just kind of like freestyle what you well, know brainstorm having having done this and taught this and and practiced it for so many years now um i will say that i don't need to do that process mm. um uh i have i have i have now honed the ability to kind of get to the cut to the quick a lot faster without having to go through that but the process works. I mean, it yeah. absolutely works. And this is what I really recommend to students because, uh, like I said, if you've only got one idea, you don't dare look too closely at it. <laughs> <laughs> you just, you just gotta kind of go with the flow and, and, and kind of ignore its, its flaws. Whereas if you've got a lot, uh, yeah. it will work. And, and having, I mean, my book, uh, has close to 2000 logo examples in it. Right. Mm. And, and they're all, they all show whatever we're talking about at the particular moment, but, but I have internalized the principles to an extent that, that, yeah, I can, I can, I can now, uh, put aside that, uh, part of the process because it's so part of me yeah. that I, I can, I can get to a solution. I have a client who has a, a, a wonderful, um, prefabricated ultra ultra um, energy efficient building system uh, that he that he uses where they can go on a site and if you've got the foundation and the floor put on they can put a house up in one day mm. four men you know? wow and uh, and and they can heat the whole thing for about 250 dollars a year wow and that's here in Canada, right? So and yeah. that's 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 remarkable stuff. And I was able to come up with the with the logo for him because I could right away see it was a question of putting the stuff in in each wall that was going to allow the lack of energy to come out. So there were a set of two different arrows, arrows in and arrows out. Mm. And uh, and so by by putting that in a in a circle and having having uh he he initially was going to have six different aspects to his his uh he uh, had walls and windows and and so on and yeah. so i just took the six as as his cardinal number and repeated those arrows in and arrows out six times and came up with the logo that was that brilliant um, and uh and it worked and he loved it and and it you know he's going to go with it and uh so it's um uh, but again that that's because i i have trained myself to kind of see what they what they want and by by using that that process that i explain in the book yeah so it's just like uh if we can if we could use another another metaphor a musician who never does scales will never be able to just uh do a solo riff improvisation yeah because you don't really master those scales you just got those have to just be part of you you yeah. can't, you don't think about them, you know, so you have to put in the discipline to, to have that kind of familiarity with the media and, and the art form so that you can do that. Uh, mm. I, I've, I've got that now and, but I'm still not above going through the process if I'm stuck. You know, if I have a client and there, there are times when I have clients and I think, what am I going to do for this person? You know, And, yeah. uh, and I'll go back to the process and it works. 
you know. Uh, but other times, like I say, uh, I'll just know right off the bat. Hey, yeah, I know, I know what to do. Uh, and it, and I it, think that's it's great to have parameters because I think you know, for me as someone who's new and very fascinated by brand identity and um, you know design in general, um, I just always imagined you know these people just have the capacity to think creatively about you know um, logos and marks and just like finding ideas of course you have to talk to a client to find out what really makes their brand their brand and you know what makes it unique and then you infuse that into your design process but i just always imagine people just had this creativity that it just takes special people to have and you know um i think this process gives um makes it kind of like universal where if you follow these steps um and you're, you know, very, you know, you're not sticking to the one quote unquote good design that you came up with, then, you know, you're likely to come on, stumble upon something that is worthy of, you know, a brand that approaches you for um, a good logo. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to trying this, actually. And this is something that they probably don't teach in school <laughs> in the process of no, designing logos. True. I, I think uh, I think that my YouTube channel is getting like I think out of all the views, I think I might have had two that weren't you know weren't thumbs up because people are seeing this works. And yeah. uh, I, I use an example of of what happened in the in the pre-Renaissance times when artists try to show buildings or cities. And the perspective was just plain wonky. They knew that, seen that that lines kind of did something when they went into a distance, but they didn't understand the principle that worked that it worked on. Yeah. And it was a man named Filippo Brunelleschi, who was a sculptor and an architect and so on, who figured out the principles of linear perspective. And once he explained it, everybody went, oh, of course, <laughs> of course. And boom, everybody adopted it. And, you know, they could see that, yeah, yeah that's it. That's the principle. Yeah. And so, you know, there really are principles for every art. And and there's discipline in every art. You just can't get away from that. And this this notion that to be an artist is to be not follow rules, and I just think that's a bunch of bunk. You know, mm. that's just people wanting permission to act badly and 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 uh, and do you know be selfish or whatever. It's it's yeah. just, and it doesn't work, and it never has worked. And and uh, we've somehow bought into that in the Western world that that is part and parcel of being an artist and. I'm sorry. It's just not. It, mm. it isn't. There's discipline. There's real principles to learn because you're doing. You're trying to come up with real effects that you yeah. can count on that will affect everybody the same way. And you know, that's well said. Um, yeah. Who are before we wrap up? Who are some designers um, that you've looked up to in the process of um, you becoming a, a designer and? A writer and artist i mean yeah. you clearly do a lot more things than i am currently aware of and i'm looking forward to like diving into more of your works um but yeah some designers that you looked up to early on and some designers that you think um people new and emerging uh designers should really study and look into uh some of the people that really um have taken the time to uh, refine their work, taking the time to be well-disciplined and, you know, adhere to like these types of principles that you advocate for in your book. Right. 
Uh, well, certainly the ones that I, I talk about in the chapter on, on great designers of the last century, uh, Saul Bass, Paul Rand, uh, they, they certainly stood out in their whole generation. Nobody else of that generation has identities that are still in use, and they do. <laughs> they do, mm. because they, they hit on uh, some, of those, some of those principles. Now, they didn't know what they had, and they also designed logos that were dogs that didn't work, you know, but, uh, but they, they did some great ones. Uh, Saul Bass, Paul Rand, uh, Chermeff and Geismer, neither of whom are, are still practicing, but their successor, uh, Sagi Haviv, yes. has taken over the company, and he, he does beautiful identities, and they are instinctively following these principles. They just don't know it. You know, uh, and uh, and so I actually sent the first edition of my book to um, to them, and uh, uh, Ivan Chermayev, uh wrote me back an actual hand, you know, a letter on paper. Wow! Mailed it to me, signing it and all. And he says, at last, somebody finally understands the principles of identity design. And how it is accomplished. That's beautiful. And so I, I wrote him back and I said, Do you, would you mind if I use that quote of my pr promotion? He said, absolutely, go for it. You know? <laughs> yeah, he has Lovely. since passed away. He has since oh. passed away, but I have his letter and uh, it's one of my prized possessions, you know? That's special. He really recognized that these principles work. Yeah, you know? yeah. That's special. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's um, for me, since discovering your, your YouTube channel and since getting the book, and I intend to get the uh, edition 2.1, actually, because I really want those more examples always helps. Um, but yeah, since discovering your YouTube channel, I've just been like baffled at why more people don't know about your channel. Um, well, and I, I imagine... Only I only started it a few months ago, so yeah, that's what I was about to say. I imagine it's only because you've just started. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, the future, um, this education platform online. It's uh, the future, F U T U R, without the E. Um, it's led by um, Chris Doe, who is a designer based out in California. I actually had him on the podcast uh, last year. And he's someone that I feel would really appreciate the principles you're discussing in this book. Um, and I think it would be great to have, you know, you on that platform. Um, I'll right. do my best to, you know, um, have your book and the way to contact you, you know, um, available to him. So that way, because I, I think this is something that everyone needs in their library and their course material i think it's absolutely important and um yeah i think more eyes need, need to be on your channel and um i think all his followers are designers so they'll eat every single episode up so anyways um do you have any parting words or advice for new and emerging creatives and designers, um, people who are interested in brand design. Uh, a lot of people that I've followed through this Chris Dill guy have been into brand strategy and a lot of these types of, you know, um, works in this field. Do you have any advice for, for people who might just be figuring out how to delve into this world? I'm one of those people. Well, like I like I said, I'm 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 giving away all that all the stuff that's in the book on the YouTube channel. I'm I'm not interested in 
and and uh, you know getting rich from it. I'm just interested in getting it out to the world of graphic design, and I'll do whatever I can before I die to you know to get it all out there so yeah. that people understand it because they are true principles. They just are, and just like with the principle of linear perspective, nobody's figured out that there's a problem with it in all the 500 years since he did it. You know, I mean, it, yeah. it, because it works. I mean, golly, well, what can you do? It works, and and so do these principles, and and. I just like the world of graphic design to, to do that because I think it's a shame that anybody would, you know, like uh, some of these big branding companies, they'll charge, you know, five and six figures to design an identity and then it doesn't work because mm. it's hit and miss. Because these people have not figured out that there are principles you cannot ignore. And uh, and that, I think, is true of every discipline. It's It's true of writing. It's true of dance. It's true of drama. It's true, of, you know. It's true in photography. It's you know, there, yeah. there are principles, and and you just gotta you just gotta learn those principles because they exist. Whether or not you were taught them in school, they still exist. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and that's what you got to figure out. Yeah. Um, how can people find uh, one this book and two more of your work online? Well, I have uh, I have my own uh, uh, website, logodesigntheory.com. So that's uh, probably, I have tried on YouTube and because I'm just starting out with YouTube and even though I only have, I don't know, 120 subscribers so far, and that's just in what, three months. So that's pretty good. Um, good. Still not that well known. You just stumbled across it. But what I found even by typing in logo design theory, I get about a dozen things before me. (laughs) I don't know why. That's interesting. Yeah. That's the name of my channel. (laughs) But uh, so the easiest way is just to go to logodesigntheory.com because there I have a link to my YouTube channel and then you can get it all for free. And uh, and I have some other uh, other things on the channel that might be helpful too, or on my on my website. But uh, so that that would be the thing. And of course, the book itself is available on Amazon, wherever you buy books. It's distributed by uh, Ingram. Uh, and so any bookstore will order it uh, if you don't if they don't have it. It's, it's just there. I would advise people to get the latest edition because I'm having a hard time getting the older editions like off the page. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, uh, so the edition 2.1 and um, it's, uh, it's available. Yeah. I'm looking forward to getting that one as well. Um, Michael, thank you so much. Uh, I really do appreciate this. Um, I think you'll be back on a podcast because I would love to talk to you more about your other works as an il- illustrator, a writer, um, many more things about design, of course. And um, yeah, hopefully we can keep this going uh, into the future. Thank you. All right, folks, that's it for this episode. If you like this topic and want more like it, leave us your feedback on our review page or send all of your questions to the email linked in the show notes. Catch you next time.